Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit, one week at a time. Hello and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm your host, PJ Weary, and I'm here today with Dr. Rob Virchik. Uh, he's one of the nation's leading scholars in disaster and climate change law and a former EPA official in the Obama administration. Uh, Dr. Virchik, uh, quite a few more things that you've, you've uh, written and you, you've served uh, uh, as a professor for, but uh, we're talking about your book, um, The Octopus in the Parking Garage today, and uh, it's just... Um, it's awesome to have you on today. Thank you for coming. Well, thanks very much for having me. Uh, so tell us a little bit um, why this book and why the title. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure this is the ubiquitous question, right? Why the octopus in the parking garage? So there really was an octopus in the parking garage, uh, and it was alive. Uh, this happened around uh, 2016 back uh, in Miami Beach on uh, Biscayne Bay. There's a really nice uh, residential tower there that's called the Mirador. And um, the story I just found in the news, what happened, there was a guy, his name was Richard Conlon, I met him, and he was uh, getting up in the morning, going out into the parking garage structure of his building to get into his car. And the whole, the, the, the whole surface of the parking lot is just full of water and with that fluorescent weird green light shining down. And so he's trying to get to his car and as he's dipping his feet into the water, he sees these big flopping rubbery limbs. Um, and it's an octopus, like about the size of, you know, twice the size of a big pizza and it's flopping around there. So he does what anybody would do. You know, he took his phone out and he started taking a lot of pictures and video and he put it online. It all went viral. And a friend of mine said it to me, and we were having kind of a, uh, you know, a good time chatting about it and, and so on. And then I started to look into why this actually happened. And it is a climate story. Uh, the climate story is that the way that octopus got there was through a storm drain that, uh, you know, went out of the garage and then all the way down into Biscayne Bay. And normally the entrance of that or the exit of that storm drain is right above the water. But because of sea level rise and uh, also because of some tide action and so on, um, that, that storm drain has been reversing a lot more than it's supposed to. And uh, it's spit the wrong way. And up goes the octopus into the parking garage and then eventually uh, some security people get it out and it's okay. Um, but I started to think, you know, if we can't keep octopuses out of parking garages, there are tons of other things that we can't do uh, because climate change is making those things harder. And so I thought that was a good place to start because it was a memorable story, uh, because I thought people could relate to it. And it wasn't scary because there's lots of stuff in my book that is scary. I mean, we're talking about wildfires. We're talking about floods and power outages and all the kinds of things that we saw this summer of, of, of 2023. 
And, um, and I need to get into that. And I want people to have hope and understand how we can manage these things. But at the same time, I needed to draw them in first. And, um, and so I thought it was a good way to, to start a, uh, the beginning of a big idea. Yeah, I, and uh, even it was interesting as I was looking at that uh, story, uh, the way that people tried to solve it and the way that it, um, you know, there were some solutions that I was like, oh, that actually could work, like the one-way valve. And then you, the yeah. expert you were talking to was like, well, we don't know where any of these pipes are. They're all corroded. And, you know, and we don't even know of a one-way valve that would actually be effective enough to do that. And it's like, oh, you know, it's like, there's just that... <laughs> That an anti-octopus valve these easy solution <laughs> go ahead yeah yes no i was just gonna say an anti-octopus like, oh, valve man. right <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 it's just not yeah and um it, it's interesting even um so for us this summer uh, i'm in central florida uh i'm at one you know i'm not gonna lie i kind of feel like uh, lex luther from like the christopher reeve uh superman um, yeah, you know, he wants to blow up like uh, the fault line and drop off of California, the ocean and get lots of real estate. Um, so we're, we're, we're at the highest point in uh, Florida. And uh, I was like, you know, my long term plan is just to have beachfront property. Um, yeah. But the <laughs> just as the sea levels continue, but it, it is. Um, it, it was interesting. Even you mentioned that Orlando is a possible like safe spot because that's around where we're at. Uh, but the, we, we are seeing, um, even where we are and I'm sure everyone's seeing stuff everywhere, like with the, the wildfires and those kind of things, but systems that we had in place for shelter, uh, are failing us, uh, even here. So, you know, you talk about like heat stroke deaths, those type of things. Um, but just to like, I, I felt like it, this was very personal for me. Uh, we had talked about as a family moving out of Florida. And when we, we talked about, uh, we decided to stay in Florida. I was like, if we stay in Florida, we have to have a pool because my experience over the last uh, 20 years of my life, anytime I was in Florida and you don't have a pool, you can't do anything outside in the summer. Right. Yeah. Um, and so this summer it was too hot to use the pool. It was like getting into a hot tub. Like it was, yeah. I think the pool water was like 85, 90 degrees without any heating. And so we end up just staying indoors all the time. And our AC unit, uh, is, you're supposed to replace the filters every three to six months. We had to replace it every month because we ran the AC so hard. And that, that's a design. I wouldn't say it's a flaw in the design. It's a design that was made for a specific set of temperatures, right? And so there's this strain on our infrastructure that I like, and this is me just like trying to connect with even some of the stuff I read in your book of like, oh, our AC wasn't built to handle these temperatures. And I'm just thinking about how that gets replicated in so many systems. You know what I mean? Like, uh, as we talk about wildfires, as we talk about um, all these other things I'd, I'd love to hear more about, it, what we see is it's like there's billions of dollars of infrastructure, uh, maybe even trillions of dollars of inf infrastructure that's supposed to deal with weather and keep people safe at a, in a specific way. It's not that we're now outside the bounds of what it's designed for. You know, another great example of that is uh, stormwater management, uh, because one of the one of the bigger, more noticeable effects of climate change, which we're already seeing a lot in the United States, is heavier, heavier rain, particularly in certain parts of the country, up in the upper Midwest and in the Northeast, for sure. And so, you know, you mentioned I uh, I uh, worked in the Obama administration at, at the EPA uh, for a couple of years in in his first administration. 
and uh, we uh, at the EPA would help cities try to figure out how they they could manage their their stormwater in the future. And so you'd have the city of Chicago, you know, investing billions of dollars into new canals that go underneath the roads and new tunnels that sh ship water in, in various directions so that you don't have sewer overflows and, and public health disasters. And one of the things they quickly found was that they can't just replace the pipes for what they're used to. They have to figure out what uh, rain is going to be like in you know 50 years from now, because we know those pipes and all that infrastructure is going to be around for a very long time. And that's a big problem. I mean, we have that problem. I'm talking to you from New Orleans up in Baton Rouge. Uh, there's billions of dollars worth of deferred maintenance on their stormwater systems, floods uh, in the roads, uh, you know, sewer overflows in people's uh, houses. And um, and it's a moving target because nobody's sure what the new normal is going to look like, you know, in 20, 30 years. And I think, uh, and this is something you hit quite a bit in your book, and I really appreciate this. Can you talk a little bit to how this exact problem uh, hits different classes of people differently? Well, that's a very big issue um, that a lot of people might not necessarily think about, you know, at, at first. But... Um, in the United States, uh, it's absolutely true that people of color and uh, people of lower income are in the climate bullseye, which is to say that they are the ones who suffer most. This is true, incidentally, globally, too, if you, if you look at poor countries versus rich countries. And if you think about it, the reason is pretty clear. So, so one is the exposure to whatever the harm is, is greater, because, uh, you know, you might not have a house with air conditioning in it, for instance, or you might live in a part of town that doesn't have very good storm water drainage. And that's related to um, property taxes, and it's related to patterns of racial discrimination in the past. Uh, uh, and it's related you know, to, all, to all kinds of decisions. Uh, so exposure is higher. And then the other problem is that one's ability to recover uh, or absorb the, the the blow, if you want to think of it that way, um, that ability is also lower because folks with less money are less able to um, you know to to fix their roof, pay to fix their roof before the insurance payment comes in, or they might not have insurance at all. So all of the or they might not have cars to evacuate, or uh, you know whatever it is, uh, the ability to buy air filters when there's a lot of wildfire smoke in your area. Um, so all of those things, uh, you know, tally up. And uh, as it turns out, it's the folks who really have probably contributed the least to the climate change problem that are um, experiencing most of the hardship, I would say. And that's something that we have to think about as a society is, is how, we, how we address that issue, how we correct it. So, uh what as you have a, you know you you went on a kind of specific journey through different areas can you talk about um some of the unique challenges that face each area because one of the things that you talked about as a solution is the creativity and like the communal aspect in very specific local conditions well it's really important that uh local communities take part and are really i'll say seen uh as solutions uh, to address climate adaptation or climate resilience are, are put into place. 
And one reason is pretty obvious is that it's the, the resilience has to be built at the local level. If we're talking about storm drains or sea walls or even relocating a community. Uh, the other thing is, is that these are the folks who know the area best. They know their needs the most. Uh, and they know uh, the, you know, the economic situation and, and the cultural situation uh, and so on. Uh, the, the problem with just relying on local is that uh, these uh, fixes require lots of money. They require lots of scientific and technical expertise that uh, is generally not available even in many states. Um, and it requires uh, cooperation among many different groups. Yeah, you know, if you've got a, a community that's going to be sending people away, there's going to be other communities that are going to be accepting those people. And, uh, and so there needs to be a lot of uh, convening going on. And that's something, all of those things, money, technical assistance, uh, cooperation and convening, those are the sorts of things that large scales of government do, uh, federal government, for instance, or if we're talking about the global situation, some kind of an international body. And so that's what, to me, makes this area so interesting to be talking about climate resilience, uh, and and it be, because it involves uh, cooperation among le many levels. But the other thing I think that makes it really important, just as a uh, just as a policy strategy, or maybe a window into working in the area of climate, is that because it is so local, it's easier for people to relate to it. Um, it's easier for people to see their values in it because some people are their values about the environment. Other people, their value is about protecting um, the uh, economic value of their home uh, or protecting their children. Everybody has a value that that you know you that uh, gets uh, that is relatable. And the other thing is that the ways to address these problems can, in the beginning, seem smaller and more uh, more concrete, you know? So if I say, oh, well, one of the ways that we're going to control stormwater in New Orleans, and this is a true story, is that we're going to uh, start building parks in a way that retain water when it rains, or we're going to start uh, putting in uh, landscaped canals along some business streets. Um, that's something someone can, can, can imagine pretty, pretty easily. Um, yeah. it'll, it'll show up in a year or two and business owners who are running restaurants are going to like it really fast because they're going to like the, the beauty of the garden or whatever it is. And, um, and so you get what, uh, you know, wonky economists call co-benefits. So the, the big benefit is controlling stormwater 50 years from now, but the, the short-term co-benefit is a prettier community. And, and so if you can try to build things that way, uh, sometimes you get better buy-in. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, that's something, um, uh, I, I, this is not my day job. My day job is, uh, I'm a, I own my own digital agency and, uh, it, it's amazing. Like the, the, how awesome it feels to create a solution that everyone benefits from in multiple yes. ways. Right? right. And that's always like, that's always the, the goal. But what it takes is it doesn't take that much more thought, but it generally does take a little more thought. And most people want to just stop at the first solution they come to, right? It's like, oh, we'll put a one-way valve. 
and then they try and do it and it doesn't really work, you know, and instead it's like, well, okay, let's, that doesn't really seem to work. If you just sit and think about the problem for a little bit longer, we can do it this way and then it solves multiple other problems. Um, you know, and, and I bet what you find with that um, is that because you're working at maybe a smaller scale, let's say with your company or yeah. with, with the city of New Orleans, you can experiment more, right? And so one of the yes. problems that we had when I was in the federal government is we might have a community that would say, hey, we want some federal money so we can do this, this landscaping architecture I just talked about. And then the scientists at EPA would say, yeah, but we don't know if that's going to work or not. And we don't know how much we can credit you in terms of uh, controlling water because nobody knew. No one's done that kind of thing before. Right. And so, so they'd say, they'd balk and they'd say, well, how do I know that I can get permission from you immediately? And then we would say, well, you can build a big box canal under your street, which is an ugly solution. But we know how it works. And so we wouldn't have to spend a lot of time figuring it out. And, that, and that's one of the problems that, you know, that, that we have, is, as you say. It's not just that we're habituated. Human beings are habituated, and that's, that's part of it. But it, it, it's also the fact that once you know something and, you, and you've done it over and over and over again, it kind of makes a kind of economic sense to keep doing something that's predictable, right? Right, right. And that's, uh, but and there's some interesting things here, uh, as you've talked about, there's a lot of value in the local info uh, side of things and the, the local thinking, but also at the uh, global side of things, there's a lot of important information that needs to be brought locally, right? Yeah. Um, and so there's this weird trade-off where you, some of your solutions might not be as tailored and they don't give you these extra benefits. But on the other hand, um, it's, I was actually just... Um, watching, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Townsend's, it's a history uh, channel on the, on YouTube with my oh, sons. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they're, yeah. I, he's like the Bob Ross of like historical cooking, but right. um, <laughs> yeah. So really, uh, really good. I love, uh, I love watching that with my boys, but he was talking about farmers and I, you know, I, you just don't think about this stuff anymore. And so I appreciate my kids are like learning about all these different things, but one of them is uh, they didn't know what the weather was going to be like the next day. Yeah. Right. And like, so as you're talking about building infrastructure that's going to last 50 years, that is something that requires an enormous amount of capital, an enormous amount of understanding of uh, long-term global effects, and then applying them to a local level. And that's not something a, a local body or a local community can do. They need to be able to uh, have access to and then translate the global info. But there, <laughs> if you're if you worry about your solutions at that global level, like you're saying, like that all of a sudden, like you're trying to do a one size fit all, fits all, then you miss out on. Sometimes it doesn't work, but a lot of times you're missing out on a lot of added benefits at that local level. Uh, you know, I had this great experience. I, I think that might illustrate this point you're making is that. Um, so I spent uh, in in uh, 2012. I, I spent half a year in India, and I was actually researching. Uh, 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 initiatives on, on adapting to climate change. And some of them were big government projects like levies and things like that. And some of them were small. And I was in this uh, very large village called Gurukpur, uh, which is sort of at the foot of the Himalaya. And it's a, it's a big sprawling city. And then on the outside of the city, there are a lot of sprawling, very small postage stamp size farms, right? And um, so I was uh, visiting some folks there in a, in a community that was really concerned about climate 
resilience, although they didn't quite call it that, right? Right, and, right. And, and so I met a farmer there and she had a, I don't know, maybe an acre of land and lots of, uh, you know, everything growing on the, uh, 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 you know, from, from one corner of the acre to the other. And then she had constructed um, a whole, uh, uh, we would call it a pergola, I guess, a, a, a whole structure above her head. She was only about five feet tall. So this was a structure, maybe, maybe, maybe six feet, maybe six feet up. And, and it was just a, a series of, of rafters above that she was growing beans on vines uh, all across, right? So she's doubling her harvest, which is a good thing. And I said, I, 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 we, I had a friend who was translating and I said, well, what, what are you up to here? What is this? And she says, well, we get more floods than we used to. And when the floods come, uh, the, the, the river overflows. It's got chemicals and, and salt content in it, and it just destroys everything on the ground level. So I have a second level. And so, you know, she basically, you know, had created an, an elevated farm. And, um, and it was a kind of, um, it, it was a kind of, um, uh, of uh, strategy for, for climate resilience, you know. And I noticed that again and again um, in these communities, people, uh, uh, you know, the, there's a local uh, pump, a water pump that people would go to in the, big, in, the, in the village and they'd pump the water out and that's their drinking water and whatever else. Uh, and they started building these like uh, on the second floor of buildings instead of on the first floor, because if the water pump floods, then nobody has uh, water. Right? Um, right. So just really interesting um, fixes like this that, that people are just figuring out on the fly. Yeah. I, uh, and uh, not to go too far off track, but I wanted to men mention this because this is really um, – depending on where our audience is coming from, this is the kind of thing that is helpful as well. Can you explain uh, uh, just briefly what thermal inertia is? Because I think, you know, I'm in central Florida, so we still have like climate change people who are like, or not people, they're like, what it, is it really climate change? Is it still real? And I'm like, well, we, we've had some pretty hot summers, guys. So yeah. like, I don't, you know, so, you know, they're like, well, if we just change things, it'll go back. And I think one of the things that having that vocabulary to talk about uh, how no matter what we're going to see it continue would be, uh, I think, helpful. Yeah, this is this is a really interesting issue, and I'll and I'll, I'll define thermal inertia in a second. But um, yeah, what one of the issues that that uh, the environmental community I, I think has struggled with for you know the thirty years that I've been sort of professionally involved in it is in the beginning of that time there was very little. Uh, willingness, I would say, on the part of uh, climate activists to want to talk about adapting or becoming more resilient to climate impact. And one of the reasons was they thought that that looked like they were giving up. Like if we start preparing for the floods, that means that we're not concerned about reducing carbon pollution so that we prevent the floods, uh, which is something I get. But um, my whole, you know, since Hurricane Katrina, uh, which I went through here in New Orleans, I, I sort of devoted my whole career to climate resilience. And I pushed really hard back uh, that, that we needed to help people now uh, for floods and so on. And the reason has something to do with thermal inertia. So thermal inertia is just a fancy word that means temperatures like to stay the same uh, for, for a long period of time. And so uh, we have this big blanket 
of of carbon pollution and other greenhouse gases uh, that it's around our you know sort of enveloping our globe and it is keeping us warmer than we should be or warmer that's comfortable for us all right so the idea is well we'll stop putting up that co2 that carbon and then that blanket will get thinner and then we'll all cool off you know which is great and that is absolutely what we need to do and i am totally working on trying to make that happen the 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 issue is that you can make that blanket thinner over time but the planet is still the temperature it is uh, in part because the ocean holds most of the heat that comes uh, through our atmosphere. And if you take a, a, a pot of water and boil it uh, on, on your uh, stove, and then you turn the flame off, it's going to stay hot for probably 90 minutes because it's got to cool off. Now, for us, it's not 90 minutes. Our ocean is going to have to cool off for you know, probably over 50 years or 100 years. And um, and so then think about the idea that we've still got that blanket up there that you want to make thinner. And that blanket is made up of chemicals, CO2 and other things. Uh, and those chemicals take 50 to 100 years to dissipate. So your blanket just doesn't get thin in an instant. And your ocean doesn't cool off in an instant. You've at least got 100 years. Even if you turned off every light in the world, tomorrow, you would still have at least 100 years worth of heat. And, uh, and the, it, the truth is, of course, we're not going to turn anything off immediately tomorrow. So uh, we need to buy time. And that's often how I refer to climate resilience. I mean, it doesn't solve all our problems, but it buys time. Um, it buys yeah. us a few generations uh, so that we can st pull, uh, so, so that we can reduce the carbon that's in the atmosphere and make our blanket thinner. Yeah. And um, so even as uh, you're talking about that, uh, uh, I don't want to get too far away from climate resilience, but, um, and you've already talked a little bit about, uh, and I, I don't have the ter right terms for them, but what I think of as preventative solutions, right? Yeah. That we stop doing stuff. But then there, what do you, uh, what, what kind of hope do you have for like some of the more active solutions like carbon capture or uh, like the plastic cleanup in, in the ocean? Do you see those as uh, wh where do you see that in terms of their viability and even like how close they are to being effective? Well, uh, let's start with carbon capture. Um, I, um, there, there's a lot of controversy around that. And I have actually, I think, some pretty strong feelings about it right now, in part because in, in the state of Louisiana, um, we are uh, doing a number of things, in, including offshore wind and things to try to build up, um, to, try, to, to, to try to take down our, our, our carbon pollution. And one of the things that industry has been pushing is this thing called carbon capture and storage. And that is a system where, uh, you know, basically the way I, I think most industries envision it is uh, you continue to burn fossil fuels like natural gas and like coal. And then that CO2, that carbon that would go out into the atmosphere, you, you capture it before it goes in the atmosphere, and then you pump it down into the ground and store it forever. All right. And um, so there are a few things to say about this. <laughs> uh, one, I, I, I'm not a fan. And, and, and the reason I'm not a fan, uh, one, is that I think 
that it, it, I don't see any benefit in continuing to burn natural gas and other fossil fuels. In other words, the more you burn those things, the more you're going to rely on them. And so it, it's essentially a way for it, it's going to slow down the move to renewables. And it's basically being done because the oil and gas companies are looking for a way to continue doing what they're doing and um, and not have to worry about the mess. Uh, so let's get to the mess. The mess is pumping it all down underneath the ground and saving it there forever. And um, we don't, we've never done anything like that. There, there are actually no projects at scale that have ever been intended to store CO2 uh, underground forever. Um, it's, we don't know that we could do it because forever is a long time. Uh, you'd, have to, you'd have to maintain it. You'd have to manage it. You'd have to make sure nothing is leaking. Um, and it and it can cause problems like uh, 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 like pollution to aquifers. It can cause problems like earth tremors. These are things that people in environmental justice communities are worried about uh, around the petrochemical industries in Louisiana. The very last thing I'll just say, uh, you can tell I, I'm, I'm a I'm a strong yeah, I have strong feelings. Uh, but the yeah, um, love it. The uh, the other thing is is it's super expensive. And mm -hmm. the way that it would be financed is that the federal government would essentially pay the oil and gas companies to do this because the oil and gas companies don't want to spend the money to do this. They have no way of making up for it. And so, you know, Biden's legislation, his climate legislation, which I'm a big fan of in general, um, actually made the choice to send lots of money to oil and gas companies if they would bury their carbon underground. And, and, and the federal government essentially would pay for them to do that. Um, so that's a lot of money that could be going to a lot of other things. And it's a lot of money that will have to be spent every single year in perpetuity because right. there's no way to make a profit on doing this. It's not, it, it, it would not survive in the market. It has to be subsidized year to year. So those are my strong feelings. Um, uh, yes. You know, that said, there are situations, there are, there are some uh, um, uh, experiments going on now of trying to actually vacuum the ambient air uh, and then take the carbon that's already there and storing it underground. And, um, you know, they're, they're trying this in Iceland. In Iceland, it's a little different because uh, you can store the carbon dioxide in the ground in a way that it actually forms into rock rather than, rather than a kind of gas or a gas-like substance. And so when it's rock, it's a little sturdier, obviously, and, and le less problems uh, with it escaping. Um, it's also, you know, taking carbon out of the air that's already there, to me, is different from making carbon and then putting it somewhere. So I, I you know, I'm maybe a little more hopeful about that. Uh, plastics in the ocean, um, boy, that's another show uh, I'd have to say. But you know what I would tell you? A lot of those plastics in the ocean are made in places like Louisiana because of our petrochem. Mm. That's all oil, right? That's made into plastic. Right. And uh, and the oil and gas industry is they want a lot of plastic manufacturing because they're looking for ways to sell the petroleum. And, right. um, and so they're, they're actually selling this to their, uh, to their shareholders. They're saying, Hey, if people don't uh, burn uh, uh, petroleum for energy, um, maybe at least we can sell it so they can make plastic forks. And, um, 
and, and I think that's a, obviously a bad strategy for a lot of reasons. But you, and just to go to show that there's a there's a back end and a front end of this plastics issue, and and I'm very concerned about both ends. But you know, the the, the front end has has to do with climate. Yeah, and uh, there's uh, you know it's easy to, and I, I'm not saying that they aren't, but um, the, it get, it does get strange because. Uh, in, economics is complicated so if you if we like there's a temptation just to sink the petrochemical companies and just be like stop what you're doing yeah but then that puts a lot of things on halt that would cause more damage and then you're in this weird situation um i will say i'm very i'm really glad that i asked this question because um totally out of ignorance i meant the like the icelandic project oh right and i didn't yeah. even realize like that uh i didn't even know that they were trying to like basically just putting off the cost of moving off fossil fuels for for further along and that's uh a separate but a really important issue and so thank you for i i love the strong feelings I, i'm here for it that's what well you know <laughs> i'll just i'll just say one thing uh it, it it's not you or anyone else uh who should who should feel bad not that you do but who should feel bad about uh not knowing the terminologies because the terminologies i think are it are uh, intentionally made vague. Um, yeah. So the kind I'm talking about, stripping the CO2 that you're that you're making and putting it underground, they call that carbon capture storage, CCS. What you're talking about and what I was talking about in Iceland is called direct air capture, um, and you know, and they call it DAC, of course. Right. Uh, right. And when you uh, when you follow the oil industry, as I do, they'll often talk about, oh, we're in favor of capture technology, right? And then you, and then right. that makes you feel good, but you don't even know what they're talking about. <laughs> right, right. It's intentional. It's very like the, I would say you have like good terminology that probably isn't even really vague. Like capturing is a good, de but yeah, what happens right. is people piggyback on it because they want the the glow, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that that makes total sense. Um, one thing that's fascinating to me um, uh, that I really wanted to ask about, because I mean, this is stuff you don't even think about. What are some local problems? Because uh, we know about the glo like the global problems. I think at least most people are familiar with, you know, kind of just the heating of the ocean, uh, the rise of sea level. Most people can uh, appreciate how that affects weather patterns, how it makes land disappear, how we get octopi in the parking garages, right. you know. Yeah. Um, but what about one, what are some local problems that could become global problems? I'm thinking particularly, I mean, you mentioned this as a problem for Alaska, that yeah. the permafrost is, is melting and these viruses are being released. Yes. Of course, after the last couple of years, I'm like, that's not just an Alaska problem. I mean, it starts as an Alaska problem, but if we get rare viruses, we're not, you know, what, what are some, can you talk about that problem? And are there any other problems like that, that kind of go under the radar or that people wouldn't be familiar with that w would need to be dealt with at that global level because they're a global threat. Yeah. So, so this one about, um, uh, about microorganisms and the permafrost is actually really interesting. And it's easy to write off and say, oh, that sounds like science fiction, but you know, it's easy to write off a lot of these things like, like AI and, and, uh, and even COVID right before, yeah. uh, before we saw that. 
uh, it, basically we, you know, up in uh, Alaska, up in Northern Canada and Russia and so on, uh, there is what we call tundra, right? We, we This frozen landscape where the soil itself is just frozen. And then there's snow or ice and then snow on top of that. Uh, and uh, I, I look at nature in terms of services quite a bit. So that there's a lot of services that that even provides. One service is it's like it's 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 freezing and keeping inert things that we don't want, like viruses, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, that have been there, frankly, for hundreds of thousands of years. And uh, and all of that has been in the deep freeze and hasn't really touched any of us. But as the permafrost thaws, um, it interacts more with the atmosphere and these viruses, some of them, uh, or, or at least bacteria, some of these things can come back alive or come back into an active state. And we don't know what the active state of some of these uh, bacteria, microorganisms might be. So it's possible that there is uh, some kind of an epidemic or pandemic lurking in there. Nobody knows, right? We can't, we, we can't say for sure. Uh, but it's a possibility, right? So, um, you know, even a uh, something you might not think of, but that is probably easier to imagine, is uh, all of that tundra, all of that permafrost is, as you might imagine, a really hard surface. And so a lot of our drilling, uh, uh, oil drilling that occurs in the Arctic um, is very large machinery that is that, that tractors over that tundra, right? And uh, And that tundra, uh, supports really large oil rigs. Now, as it turns out, as that melts, or it, not melting, but as it thaws, it becomes less firm and you can't drive huge machinery over it and you can't anchor oil rigs in it anymore. And so now even the oil and gas industry is, is looking at that thawing tundra and saying, um, oh my gosh, we're not going to be able to drill for oil without that tundra. So, and I'm not kidding you, what their solution is in some cases is to put pipelines in the tundra to cool it. They're refrigerating the tundra, <laughs> um, you know, which costs a lot of money and costs a lot of energy too and so on. Uh, what, one more thing though, I did just think you, you asked like, what, what is a, uh, what's something that might affect people locally that they don't, that they don't see? Um, a lot of it would have to do with the ocean, I think. Um, so right now, uh, as I write in the book, um, coral is, uh, you know, coral reefs around the world are in big trouble uh, for a lot of reasons, but one of those reasons is heating oceans. Um, and uh, I wanna say over, way over a quarter of all the, the sea life that's eaten in the world um, is dependent on coral for some in some way because it's the it's the little animals that eat the big animals that eat the bigger animals um and it all goes back to nutrients that are in coral reefs um uh to, to oversimplify slightly and and so if those reefs which most people in the in the world let's say have never seen but if those reefs uh, are less productive uh, the very bottom of the food chain becomes less productive and uh, and everybody suffers um, including, uh, including the folks who are listening, who like to go fishing, you know, in, in, uh, Maine or like or Louisiana or wherever they like to go fishing. Um, or, uh, or the folks who depend 
on free protein from the sea for their, um, you know, for their livelihoods and, and nutrition. That's going to affect trade. That's going to affect economies in, in coastal states. It's going to affect restaurants. Anyone who works in a restaurant anywhere uh, that sells seafood. Um, so these kinds of things, I think, are, are going to be uh, much bigger deals. Yeah, and I mean, even uh, uh, you, you talk about these uh, economic effects, right, from like little things that grow out. Yeah. Uh, another one, I mean, we're seeing how uh, wars and refugee situations yeah. become, you know, in political instability, that affects uh, in, in very real ways uh, surrounding countries or countries that are open to taking people in. And one of the things that's going to happen, I mean, uh, I think it's already happening or, or has already happened. Uh, some of these Island nations yeah. are already like, if they're not submerged now, they're going to be submerged very soon and they're just going to disappear. Can you speak a little bit to what, uh, and I know that this is like, I'm asking you to predict the future, which, you know, is always fun, but yeah. what, what would, what would a, a refugee situation look like and what, how would that uh, affect uh, us uh, globally? That's a, that's a really big issue. And, and it's one that a lot of people are studying. I mean, there could be, uh, well, certainly tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of people moving mm. uh, in the next 50 years. Um, what, is, what is hard, the reason it is hard to analyze, I think, is that people move for more than one reason. And, right. um, you know, it, it's not like you're going to have people with, with a little sign that says, you know, I'm moving because of climate change. What they're, they're, they're moving because they're moving because the economy's not as good or because they, they can't deal with another, uh, uh, with another drought in their farming community, uh, or because there is, uh, there's violence, military violence that has something to do with a border war or something like that. Now, you might be able to go back and say, oh, well, that border war had something to do with the resources of water. Or you might say that your drought had something to do with climate change or, or whatever. But, uh, but it becomes it, it, at some point, it becomes really hard. And we know this just from, from the past. You know, we had uh, the, the Great Migration in the United States from the, from the American South up, and up to the upper Midwest, uh, African-American migration. And, you know, we can generally say, you know, that this that this had something to do with racism and industrialism and these kinds of things. But there every every family has a different story uh, of some yeah. of some kind. Um, the uh, what the, the reason that that is that makes it hard to work at it from a policy angle is that our current refugee um, laws, which aren't even really being respected in the United States now, you know, uh, uh, essentially say that refugees have a right to enter a country if they're being persecuted uh, for a political reason. And, and the reason um, that we have it set up that way is because it was a response to World War II and Jews attempting to escape, uh, you know, Nazi occupied lands. And so it was just really important globally to say if you're persecuted for a political reason, um, you should have uh, you should have a sanctuary somewhere. Um, well, now things are different, right? Now there are a lot of other kinds of things that are pushing people out, and um, and there's no internationally there's no guarantee of refugee status because of of climate. Um, People are more likely to probably attribute that to some kind of an economic problem, which is not something um, that does it. 
So what do you do instead? You know, because anybody could, could conceivably, you know, style themselves as a climate refugee. So, um, you know, I, I think looking forward, I would imagine more uh, bilateral or multilateral treaties among some countries uh, to allow more immigration. Uh, a lot of people don't realize this, but we actually, the United States has a special relationship with Marshall Islanders. Uh, which goes back to the history of World War II and, and bomb testing. But um, Marshall Islanders are threatened by climate change, and they have a, um, a somewhat easier way of getting into the United States. Uh, some of these uh, South Pacific island nations are, are reaching um, bilateral agreements with New Zealand or with Australia. Um, just on their own, you know, basically saying, uh, could we have a certain amount of people that, that could go here or could go there? Um, that's not an ideal solution by any stretch, but I, I think it just, practically speaking, it's going to be easier to imagine these kinds of smaller relationships than it would for some kind of a global issue. Let me, let me, let me just add a, a gloss on this because I think this part is really important. Yeah. Um, two glosses. All right. One is most people, uh, whether it's, well, most people in the world are going to be, if, when they are migrating because of climate, they're going to be migrating within their countries. Um, it, and that's just the way it's always been when people migrate for whatever reasons. Um, and, uh, and so I would expect more domestic strife in situations like that. We in the United States, have, as I've mentioned, we've had migrations, the Dust Bowl migration, the Great Migration. Um, and so on. And, and of course, uh, indigenous tribes through Indian removal and everything else. Um, and so there's a lot of disruption even within countries um, that countries could prepare for, but often don't. Um, the, the, the last thing that I'll say, and this is the big idea part, right? Okay, if we're going to chase the Leviathan, is that um, <laughs> one, you know, one thing I'll say is that um, uh, large-scale human migration is the human calling card. It is not the exception. Uh, yeah. And I, and I, you know, I get you go back six million years and prove this, right? But I, I'm just going to try to prove it just in the last hundred years or the last 200 years. Um, people have always been moving for all kinds of reasons. Um, and, and that's not always a good news story, but it's just the way it always has been, uh, whether it's because of wars or whether it's because of open territories or whether it's because of new resources or changes in technology, uh, agriculture to industrialism, whatever it is. And so uh, as, as important as it is to have a sense of place, and I'm a real believer in a sense of place, as important as it is to understand that you know, people need roots, um, people are also really resilient and able to adapt to almost any kind of living environment. That doesn't mean that we can sit back and say, well, let's just let it all happen. But what it does mean is that it's a sense of hope that we've done this before. We've got this. But what we need to do is figure out how to make it effective, efficient, and fair. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh avoiding of like there's going to be some suffering it seems like that's unavoidable at this point yeah so again that's kind of the human calling card right like it like, <laughs> you can't avoid all suffering in life but surely you know it's better to avoid what we can um i want to be respectful of your time uh thank you so much for coming on today can you um 
for our audience, give us uh, kind of a, a final thing to just think about uh, throughout the week uh, as they, they think about uh, this issue with climate change and climate resilience. Yeah, I, 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 a couple of things. I tell this to my students. I tell this to, to people uh, on, on book tours, actually, that, that, um, that I've been doing. Uh, the, the, the first thing is don't get overwhelmed with this. When you get overwhelmed, you don't do anything. Um, action is the, is the antidote to despair in, in a case like this. And so the most important thing, I think, is to think about things you already care about, networks of people you already have, and to say, how will that thing that I care about be affected by climate change? Maybe I like gardening. Maybe I like to snorkel. Maybe I'm interested in children's health because I'm a school teacher who supervises the playground during heat waves, you know, whatever it is. And then say, and then say to yourself, okay, how might climate make that worse? And then how can I tap into my networks to learn more about it, talk more about it, and then do something simple, you know? And so whatever, I mean, like I say, you could be a gardener, you could like wine, right? You could be a wine aficionado and, and, and start saying, oh, I wonder how climate change is going to affect like where the good Pinot Noirs are going to come from or whatever it is. And just, just take that because it's less pressure and you're going to stick with it more, I think, if you do it that way. Yeah. And I, I think at the end of the day, you know, uh, when you talk about people voting or you talk about um, these big policy decisions, people feel a sense of despair, especially with the way politics are shaping up in the United States. And so sure. looking at it, these kind of uh, I, I love that. I love. Um, thank you for leaving us with a, a, a vision and message of hope. <laughs> Because yeah. that's not always the end of these, right? And so uh, I appreciate that. Thank you. No, for and it's tough. I, I, you know, it's tough. We've got an uphill climb. There's no question. But we can do it. Yeah. Yeah. What a, what a great way to end. I, I was not, I'm not going to lie. When I, when I looked at this topic, I was not sure. You know, I've actually, I, you know, from your book, you, you're, you're very big on ending on hope. So I, I was hoping for that. But <laughs> I was like, like, okay, climate change. Ooh, you know, so anyways. Um, Appreciate it. And uh, it's been a, it's been a real honor. Thank you. Take care. Thanks very much. 